You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, we're going to dive right into our text this morning as we're looking at the seven sayings from the cross. We come to the third saying now in John 19, verses 25 through 27. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we got three Marys here. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now, just a few days after Jesus was born, his mother Mary and adoptive father Joseph They take him to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate him. This was required by the Jewish law. Your firstborn son was to be dedicated in the temple. And as they're taking their infant baby, I guess there's no other kind of baby, but as they're taking their infant into the temple complex, there's this weird old prophet named Simeon who's there. Now, this guy Simeon's a fascinating person. Somehow or another, God has revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he had laid eyes upon the Messiah who was coming to deliver God's people. And so Simeon, I don't know how long he's been hanging out at the temple every day of his life, waiting, looking, anticipating which one of these babies that's coming in is going to be the one. Uh, He must have seen hundreds of families coming into the temple. But when this nondescript peasant couple, Joseph, Mary, and this little boy, Jesus, when they walk up the steps, the Holy Spirit nudges Simeon and says, that's the one. And Simeon goes and takes this baby into his arms, and he holds him up, and he begins to prophesy over the baby Jesus. And he prophesies numerous things. But before he finishes, he looks over at Mary, and he says, and a sword shall pierce your own soul. And here now, 33 years later, the sword of sorrow is piercing the soul of Mary. Oftentimes when we talk about the cross, our conversation gets so overlaid with theological interpretation that sometimes we miss the reality and the presence of real human suffering at the cross. Let me just put it like this. Nobody was doing theology at the cross. Either people were standing there watching callously, or they were mocking him like the soldiers, or they were grieving like Mary and these women. So today we come to the third saying of Jesus from the cross, and Jesus speaks to his mother and he says, woman, behold your son. And then he speaks to John and says, behold your mother. Now this saying on one level can be understood to be the occurrence of Jesus making practical arrangements to make sure his mother is taken care of when he passes. We can see it like that, certainly. But you see, John, who's writing this, John is a poet, as we've seen time and again. John is not just, he doesn't see himself as like a a journalist. I'm trying to just record historical events. That's never what John is up to. 
He has no interest in that. John is an artist. He's a poet. He's a craftsman. And the whole gospel of John is just layer upon layer of meanings, secret meaning, meanings, hidden meanings, symbolic meanings, metaphor. It's all over the place if you look, if you look uh, closely enough. So what is it that John wants us to know and hear and learn from this third saying of the cross when Jesus says to his mother, woman, behold your son. Well, let's just start with the word woman. Maybe you're wondering this morning, was it common and acceptable to refer to your mother in first century Jewish culture as woman? And the answer is it was about as common and as acceptable as it would be today which is to say not common and acceptable at all. You don't call your mother woman. But some of you may realize, you may remember, this is not the first time that Jesus has done this. At the very beginning, in fact, uh, John chapter 2, before Jesus has even launched his ministry, you remember he's invited to a wedding in nearby Cana, just within walking distance of Nazareth. He's there along with his mother and his earliest followers. Presumably they would have they would have known the families involved, and they go to this wedding, and halfway through the wedding celebration, the wine runs out. And uh, Mary goes over to Jesus and says, all she says is, you know, they've run out of wine. And he says, woman, what does it have to do with us? My time has not yet come. And she doesn't say anything else, but she evidently she's anticipating Jesus is about to do something, and she goes to the servants and just kind of winks at him, I imagine, and she just says, just do whatever he tells you to do. And what does Jesus end up doing? He turns water into wine. Now, what's going on here? What is John wanting us to see? Because John is very, first of all, he's very economical with the amount of miracle stories that he tells. He only tells seven. That's it. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not, he's not really concerned with, let me just list a bunch of cool things Jesus did. He chooses seven and he calls them signs. Because they're not just stories to be awed by, but they're, some, they're signs to point us to something. There's some type of meaning, symbolic or metaphor or otherwise. There's something we're supposed to see through the sign that points us to something true about Jesus and the kingdom. So what is this miracle of turning water into wine? What is it, what is it meant to show us? Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah announces that God is severing his covenant with Israel because of, it, because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And God is going to hand Israel a writ of divorce and put her away. But the promise is that someday God's going to bring Israel back into covenant and marry her again. And so Jesus, by the miracle of turning water into wine, which is a symbol of joy and celebration, He's announcing that God is bringing Israel back. He is remarrying Israel as his bride, and good times are here again at last. That's what he's announcing. But this is very important. You've got to get this. In doing all of this, Jesus, you're going to see throughout the Gospels, he's going to redefine Israel in very significant ways. It's why, for example, he chooses deliberately 12 apostles reminiscent of the lost 12 tribes of Israel because what he's doing is he's reconstituting Israel around himself and now what it means to be the people of God it's no longer based on ethnicity or circumcision 
or Torah observance, these external markers of Jewish identity. No, now it's based upon faith, baptism, obedience unto God's Messiah. So that anyone, whosoever, even Gentiles now, can come in and be a part of God's great big covenant family, which we should all be grateful for. Amen? So he's creating a whole new people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, Jews and Gentiles alike. Now there's no division. Those walls of hostility have broken down. And now everyone's invited to come and be a part of this. But in this new people that Jesus is creating, it's going to take primacy even over family loyalty. I'll give you one example. Elsewhere in Jesus' ministry, he's... He's in a house that's absolutely jam-packed with people. You can't fit one more person into this house. But his mother, Mary, and his brothers, they are coming because they want to have a conversation with him. They're very concerned about him and some of the things he's saying. They're thinking he's going to get himself killed. And so they want to go and intervene, but, but they realize they can't get into the house, so they send a messenger to let him know that they're there. And so this messenger comes and taps Jesus on the shoulder and says, uh, Rabbi, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to speak with you. And what does Jesus say? Who's my mother? And who are my brothers? It's those who receive the instruction of God and do it. Those are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Now, how, how would you like to be the guy that goes back and tells that to Mary? <laughs> I can just see her thinking, okay, first he calls me woman. And now he's saying everybody's his mother. This is great. But here at the cross, Jesus again addresses his mother as woman. And he speaks to her and says, woman, behold your son. And then he looks in the direction of John and says, behold your mother. Now, is this, is this just simply Jesus making arrangements to make sure his mother's looked after after he's gone? Is that all that's happening here? Or is there something deeper, more profound more spiritual taking place here? And the answer with John is there's always something deeper and more profound. So what is it? Well, watch this. This is very important. Mary, the historical person, Mary is the woman who quite literally gives incarnation to Christ. Mary is the woman through whom literally the word becomes flesh. And as such, she is a very clear and very powerful metaphor for the church. Because what is it today that gives incarnation to Christ in the world? What is it today that becomes the flesh and blood of Christ in the world, the hands and feet of Jesus in the world today? It's the church. Now, if you don't see the metaphor or if you over-literalize the metaphor, you end up making the mistake of fixating upon the historical Mary which leads to veneration and so often degenerates into a kind of idolatry, which is a huge mistake. But listen, as Christians, we do have a mother. It's not the historical Mary, which would be confusing and not make any sense, but Mary does represent for us the church, which explains something. When you look at the narrative of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, You'll notice that Mary is almost always present somewhere. She's present before Jesus' birth. She's there when Jesus is born, of course. 
She's there. We see Mary present at his childhood. We see Mary present so off, uh, every so often throughout his ministry. She's, of course, here at the foot of the cross. We see her after the cross with the apostles in the upper room following the resurrection. And then finally, we see Mary on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is born. But from that moment forward, have you noticed, we never hear from Mary again. She disappears from the narrative. The moment that the church is born, we never hear about Mary again in the book of Acts or elsewhere. Why? Because that which she prefigures is now on the scene. She's superseded by the church, and the church becomes the mother that gives incarnation to the body of Christ. Amen? How many of you are with me so far? All right, strap on your helmets, because we're going we're gonna to move to the book of Revelation. Okay, Revelation 12, first six verses. Let's look at this together. A great portent, portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Remember that image. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to deliver a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a scepter of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. Or in other words, three and a half years. Hmm. Now, two preliminary words, real quickly. Number one, before we even get into this text. Number one. First of all, the book of Revelation is primarily the revelation of Jesus Christ as the ruler of the world, right here and right now. That is the primary intent and message of John the Revelator that he's trying to show us through very creative imagery and symbols and metaphors. He wants us to know that the world has a new emperor, a new Caesar, a new king, a new ruler, a new president of presidents, a new prime minister of prime ministers, Jesus Christ. That is the first and primary message of Revelation. Secondly, in its historical context, Revelation is a first century prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. That's what John is really after and wanting to do. Does it have relevance for us today? Absolutely it does. But we first need to understand Revelation primarily as a first century prophetic critique of, Roman of the Roman Empire. If you're one of those folks who says, you know what, I, I want to sit down with my Bible and I want to read through Revelation, and I want to interpret Revelation properly. First of all, good luck. <laughs> Secondly, let me give you the single best tip I can give you. Now, there's a lot of things I might say, but here's the most important tip that I would give you. You need to become well-versed in the symbols, in the history, in the practices of the Roman Empire, because that's what John is critiquing. Now, if you're not interested in that, and you just want to come up with your own interpretation, it'll be all over the map. 
It'll be this huge, crazy, harebrained interpretation. And the upside of that is you can sell a lot of books that way, I've learned. The downside of it is you'll completely miss what John is doing. All right, so put that aside. That was just kind of like some extra stuff. But what about this passage in Romans 12? Well, here in this passage, we're given a picture of a woman who is Israel first. We meet Israel as a woman. We know that she's Israel because way back in Genesis 37, Jacob has a dream about Israel. It involves himself and Rachel, his wife, and his 12 sons. And in his dream, he sees a woman with the sun and the moon at her feet with a crown on her head with 12 uh, stars. And so it's Israel. And in this vision in Revelation 12... Israel, this pregnant woman, she's going to give birth to the Messiah, which is true, because Messiah comes from Israel. He's the king of the Jews, the Messiah of the Jews. But then it's interesting because as you trace this vision, this woman morphs. At first she's Israel, but then she like shapeshifts and morphs into Mary, but then she morphs again into the church. You ever have one of these dreams? where um, you're dreaming about something and all of a sudden in the middle of your dream, like things shift, like you have certain people in your dream, but then they become something else and, and it confuses you. You're like, okay, I'll just go with this, I guess. You know, like let's say I'm dreaming about um, Abraham Lincoln and then right in the middle of the dream, Abraham Lincoln turns into Dave Swanson but Dave's got a beard and a 10-gallon hat. I'm like, what? I thought it was Abe. Okay, it's, it's Dave. All right, I'll go with this. You ever have that? Y'all just looking at me like I'm crazy. Y'all have dreams like that? All right, maybe I'm taking something. I don't know. But that's what Revelation 12 is like. This woman starts out as Israel, pregnant, to give birth to Messiah, but then she morphs into Mary, the historical Mary, who's pregnant and is going to give birth to this son who's destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But then we see this red dragon who is the Roman Empire who wants to devour the child, reminiscent of Herod the Great, who's after this baby and there's the slaughter of the innocents. All of that's being referred to here in this vision. But then she turns into the church and escapes into the wilderness for three and a half years. What's up with that? What's going on there? Well, remember Jesus during his ministry and particularly in his final week, he, he repeatedly and very explicitly prophesies the fall of Jerusalem. You see that in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Very explicitly, Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. Not one stone will be left on top of one another. It's going to be a nightmare, he tells the people. He says they're going to hem you in on every side. It's going to be a great slaughter. It's going to be hell on earth. And he says a bunch of things, but he tells them this is going to happen in this generation. Not, these words will not pass away. This generation will not pass away until these things have happened. And he's moved by it. And he weeps. In fact, during his triumphal entry, as Jesus is riding down the Mount of Olives on that, on that little donkey, and they're, they're waving the palm branches, shouting Hosanna, and there's all this glee and jubilation, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. He says, you don't know. City of peace, you don't know the things that make for peace. And I know it's going to happen. You're going to remain hell-bent on vengeance against Rome, and you're going to think you got God on your side. But they're going to come in. The Romans are going to come in. They'll hem you in on every side. They'll besiege you. 
They're going to slaughter people by the thousands. It's going to happen in this generation. And he said, there's going to be signs, though. And when you see these signs, when you see the armies approaching, when you hear about these false messiahs, like, for example, Bar Kokhba in 66 AD, who rose up and said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the true liberator of Israel. Jesus says, when you hear about that happening, he says, get out, get out, get out of the city. If you're on the rooftop of your house, don't even go inside. Just skip from house, rooftop to rooftop. Get out of the city because her destruction has come near. You remember all of this? And what happens? Exactly what he said. It began three and a half years before the final destruction began. It took place AD 66, the Jewish revolt. At first, it looked like it was going to be successful. People were like, yeah, God's delivering us. And then the Romans come, and then there was like a break in the action because the story gets a little bit complicated. The emperor died, and Vespasian had to leave, and then Titus was sent. So it's a complex story. But we know from history that those who were believers in Jesus, they remembered these words. And you know what they did? When they, when they heard and saw these armies coming, they fled the city. They fled Jerusalem. Where? Into the wilderness. Into Pella, into Transjordan. And they were spared from what was to come. But then the whole thing just began to unravel. The final destruction came. It was absolutely awful. Eventually the siege began in earnest. Passover week, A.D. 70. Exactly 40 years to the week that Jesus prophesied these things. The Romans came in, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, wouldn't let anybody in, wouldn't let anybody go out. Of course, eventually they run out of food. Famine sets in. People start resorting to cannibalism. There's tremendous infighting within the Jewish factions in Jerusalem. It was absolutely hell on earth. And people tried to flee, and it was too late. Those who fled or tried to flee, the Romans captured them and crucified them until there were tens of thousands of corpses hanging on Roman crosses outside the city of Jerusalem. And then in August of that year, the Romans break down the city walls and just slaughter people by the thousands. Josephus, the Jewish historian, estimates some 1.1 million people were killed. Tacitus, the Roman historian, estimates about 600,000. Both of those numbers probably inflated, but nevertheless, it was a horrible bloodbath. And Jesus saw it coming, he foretold it, and he warned people to avoid it. Now, why am I going into that story? Just because it's a interesting piece of history? No, because it helps us to see what's happening in Revelation 12. This woman, this glorious woman who is Israel, who's pregnant to give birth to Messiah. She shapeshifts and morphs into Mary, who's pregnant and gives birth to Messiah, but then she morphs into the church who flees into the wilderness. What's the point as it relates to this sermon? There's a sense in which the church is always continually giving birth, giving incarnation to Christ in the world. And it's never easy. But the apostles and the prophets, they teach us to understand the church as our mother. And we need to have the same kind of respect for the church as we would our own mother. How many of you have respect for your mother? Raise your hands. If you don't have your hand raised, I'm going to tell on you. All right. But listen, that doesn't mean your mother's perfect. We're not delusional. Your mother's not perfect, but you still love her. I want you to hear my heart this morning. So often the church throughout the last 2,000 years has been unfaithful, sometimes in grotesque ways. 
the church has not always gotten it right. Sometimes the church has got it horrifically wrong and so often has been compromised with the values of the surrounding culture. Why? Because the church consists of sinners in recovery. It's not hard to find something wrong with the church. It doesn't make you a prophet to find something wrong with the church. And you can become disillusioned with the church if you fixate only upon those realities in which the church is and has been unfaithful and often is compromised. But she's still our mother. And we need the care and the nurture that comes from the church because Christianity is not a lone ranger sport. It is a communal activity. It is not a personal, private endeavor. Sometimes I talk with these people who, who say things like, you know, I just want it to be me and Jesus. I, I just want Jesus to forgive me. I just want to sit at home with my Bible and read my Bible and pray. I love Jesus. I want Jesus, but I sure don't want the church. I don't want to have anything to do with the church. I hate the church. I'm done with the church. Whatever else you think about that, it's not Christianity. That's not what Christianity is. Because Christianity is a communal activity. It is to be a part of the family of God. And to divorce yourself from the church is to divorce yourself from what God is doing in the world. And also to stunt your own spiritual growth. Christianity is a communal activity, not a private endeavor. I'm going to quote Blind Willie Johnson. He was the original king of the blues. He was the father of the blues. Some, some people say it was Robert Johnson. No, it's Blind Willie Johnson. He came earlier. He was a fantastic blues musician. And in one of his songs, which would eventually become like a blues standard that people would cover later, he says this. He says, motherless children have a hard time. And he knew because he was an orphan. He understood that. Motherless children have a hard time. And if you're the kind of... Christian who would say, well, you know, I just want to believe in Jesus. I want to be saved. I want to have forgiveness of sins, but I don't want to have any part of the church. Motherless children have a hard time. I know, listen, I know that there are local churches that are in fact toxic and abusive. And if you ever find yourself in a situation like that, you need to run in the opposite direction. But when you find a church that is a life-giving, healthy community that's not perfect, but is on the journey to Jesus, I'm telling you, you need the nurture and the care of that kind of community because the church is your mother. You say, but she's, sometimes she's not faithful. Sometimes I see her sins, I know, but she's still your mother. You need the local church, the real church, a church you actually go to on Sunday morning or Saturday night. And you get to know people. You stick around. You learn people's names. You hang out with them. You sharpen one another. This is essential. It's indispensable to your spiritual health and your spiritual growth. The Holy Spirit works with imperfect people and yet still can create a culture of nurturing care that can be good for you. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.